0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Isaiah, again, chapter 40. We'll be there shortly. Before we get there, I want to remind you that, as we shall see in the Scripture, the Lord has in mind that we know His peace and that we know His comfort in our lives, but there are no end, dare I say, in this room and outside of this room, people who are experiencing great challenges in their life. And those challenges take many shapes and forms. Some of them are physical. Some of them are relational. Some of them are financial. And some of them defy Categorization. But there is no family that is not touched by hardship. There is no life that is not touched by difficulty. And ultimately, in the midst of that difficulty, perhaps you may be tempted to ask, How long, O Lord? Well, today we shall read from Isaiah 40 and you will be helped. But before we do that, we're going to read from Psalm 79. Because Psalm 79 was written at a time that is described in Isaiah 40. This Psalm is entitled How long, O Lord? Verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever, from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. Amen. In a moment, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 40. I need to remind you of what we have dealt with. We've taken a three-Sunday break between our last foray into the book of Isaiah. In the 39th chapter, where we were three weeks ago, Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah is one of the good kings, and yet in the midst of Hezekiah's reign, God uh, tells Hezekiah that he will be the end of the line for the good kings, that in fact his son will be despicable, and he turns out very much to be that. His son Manasseh reigned 55 years after Hezekiah and is the worst king in the history of Judah. Not the kind of legacy that any of us want for our children. So there is an announcement in Uh, in Isaiah 39 that, uh, if you will, points to the future. And God forecasts to Hezekiah through Isaiah his prophet that men from Babylon will eventually come and they will depose this line, the line of David. The sons of David will uh, be overthrown by the ancient uh, nation of Babylon. Babylon. And they will come and they will do whatever they intend to do. And they do. And they wreak great havoc. Now we're going to read the 40th chapter and we're going to note that something's changed. We don't quite understand this. Uh, we like our, our reading to, to be of a narrative form and we don't like it to, to jump large time periods and so forth. If you're watching a show or a movie or something on television and they say, you know, this is 20 uh, years in the future, that uh, just kind of weirds us out. Just, we don't understand that. What happened? There's a big gap of time and a lot of details and so forth. Well, the book of Isaiah does that. It jumps forward. It jumps forward right there in the margin. Do you see it between chapter 39 and chapter 40? You see that jump? No, you don't see it, but it's there. There's an enormous jump between the 39th and 40th of chapter. In fact, one of the theories to explain that jump is there are two men writing this book. One writes Isaiah 1 and one writes Isaiah 2. There's not a shred of evidence for that theory. Not a shred. But that doesn't stop people from coming up with ideas that are cockeyed. they come up with that one. And the reason they do so is because this foreshadows, chapter 40 and following, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 66, This foreshadows a time when God will send a deliverer, that God will send a deliverer who turns out to be a servant. And in fact, that the lineage of the tribe of David is in fact going to come not as a king, but rather as a servant. And that's the record that's about to happen. He's going to be unveiled here in Isaiah chapter 40 and following. And it starts right here. So at the starting line of a change of tone, and a change of message, and and if you will, a change of information. If you think the word prophecy in the Bible means prediction, then exhibit A for you is Isaiah 40 to 66, because everything that Isaiah is writing in the chapter we read today is prediction. By the way, most prophecy in the Bible doesn't mean prediction. It just means, thus saith the Lord. It's the prophetic word of God. It's the foretelling of the great truths of God. But there is in prophecy in the Bible a predictive element. And no prophet is given more ink in the realm of prediction than is the prophet Isaiah. He gives us much here to contemplate. But at the end of chapter 39 that we read three weeks ago, Hezekiah is still the king. His son has not taken his reign. Babylon has not defeated Assyria. Babylon has not come to threaten Judah. But that is coming. And all of that occurs in the white space between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. Now in chapter 40, he writes to remind them that God has a plan, even in his judgment, even in his judgment chastisement of his people. God has a plan. So we're going to see that here in this particular chapter. So let's read chapter 40 with a mind toward, this is God helping his people process, not the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, which by the way lasted 70 years, but the end of the Babylonian captivity. He has now jumped forward into the future and he is predicting that end and reminding them that he has a plan. Let's read. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. In the margin, I'll stop here. In the margin, I have handwritten my paraphrase. Right here, verse 27. You have forgotten me. Do you feel forgotten today? Well, then you come to the right place. Let's finish. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The Lord's design for our lives is that we would rest. Rest. Many of us keep breakneck schedules. And I would suggest to you that there is... Value in that at times, and I'm not in any way sitting in judgment over your schedule, but I will tell you that the end game of a life that does not know rest is all kinds of calamity. There's no end to strife that results from our earthly distractions. Some of those distractions are of our own doing. We load up our schedule ourselves. After all, no one typically does it for us. But some of those distractions or those things that distract us from God are not of our doing. They are heaped upon us by the life we live or the circumstances that we find ourselves in or the manner in which our lives call us to walk. It is the nature of life that we find ourselves challenged again and again and again and again and again to rest in God and to find peace and comfort in the midst of a difficult life or a difficult world. You may feel threatened today, but I want you to know even in the midst of feeling threatened, you can have comfort. This is the Lord's design for his people. Step back with me for a moment and imagine what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 40. None of us have ever lived in captivity, so we don't quite know what that's like, but we can imagine it for a moment. Isaiah writes to say to them that their captivity is almost over and that God is going to bring them out. The very opening phrase in Isaiah 40 is, comfort comfort my people know that the end is nigh but what about before the end because that's where we all live right we all live before the end it's not over yet our burdens are not over our circumstances are not changed yet our difficulties haven't been resolved we live before the end what about that and how are we to respond Well, we are to recognize that the Lord has promised that this will not last. That our sorrow, our difficulty, our hardship, our burdens, our our difficulty in every, every kind of possible way, they will not last. They are not eternal. This is the message that he's giving to his people. They are in captivity, and he's saying comfort them because God is going to restore you. He's going to bring you home. Notice verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. This is good news. Why are they in captivity in the first place? Because of their sin, because they reject God because they have built idols because they have condemned the way of God and because they have got caught up in the ways of the world they've become worldly and God has purged that He has rescued his people from that by driving them into captivity and this hardship that they've experienced has if you will turned up the heat on their life and these trials and tribulations have separated gold from dross and God has, ladle that off like a metallurgist would do and the impurities are cast aside and all that's left is that which God deems precious people ask me all the time why is my life so difficult well the initial answer I always give is I don't know but I know that many times God uses hardship in our lives to separate that which is pure from that which is impure and all of us have impurity are sinners. There's no person who cannot benefit from trials. There's no person that God does not intend to benefit from trials. Let me say that a different way. If you have not experienced trials in your life, well, don't get used to it because they're coming. And when they come, God intends them to have their perfect result. He intends for those difficulties, hardships, those things that you would never choose for yourself, God intends for them to produce value, even victory in your life in ways that you can't contemplate, that you can't understand, that you can't perhaps decipher just yet. And yet God intends that. So here we have in Isaiah chapter 40, God's people, now we know exactly why they are experiencing hardship because of their sin. Now, that's not the case for every hardship in life. May not be for yours, but I assure you it is for these. And so these circumstances are coming to an end. And and I want you to note just a few things here. If you like to take notes, I I think this is worth it. Most of my stuff's not worth it, but today it's going to be worth it. So I want you to note something. Verse one He has a goal for his people, and that goal is comfort comfort God intends for his people to walk in peace now that peace is not based on external circumstances exclusively though it certainly includes that it's a lot easier when your belly is full and you've got a little money in your wallet and your kids are not in rebellion or your grandchildren are not in rebellion your your world is your oyster so to speak it's a lot easier to walk in comfort there but it doesn't necessarily require that these folks are still in captivity And he is foreshadowing a day when they will experience the Lord's comfort physically. But meanwhile, until that physical day comes, he intends for them to walk in comfort nonetheless. To have peace with God and to have peace with others. There are people in this room right now whose lives are challenged greatly. And yet, they walk in peace. We should all... Do so well. His goal is comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. If you're a big fan of Handel's Messiah, you'll know that's one of the opening lines in Handel's Messiah. His means will be through the glory of the Lord himself. Notice in verse 3. A voice rises in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill brought low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Maybe you're familiar with those words, because all three of the opening gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke attribute those verses to John the Baptist who is the fulfillment of this one who's come to bring down the mountains and to bring up the valleys and to make smooth the way of the Lord to prepare the way of the Lord to prepare the hearts of the people for the Lord so that the glory of the Lord is revealed who is that person that the Bible declares is going to be the fulfillment of this John the Baptist I assure you that His means will be the glory of the Lord. One of the things that uh, you'll note in in change in tone here between the 40th chapter and the 39th chapter and all the chapters preceding is that we've been dealing with historical kings. We've been dealing with Hezekiah. We've been dealing with Ahaz. We've been dealing with Uzziah and so forth. These are all historical kings. We've been talking about kings who are the sons of David, earthly men who who are, are have feet of clay, earthly men who, who have flashes of righteousness coupled with, with flashes of unrighteousness, people who, who we had high hopes for, people who let us down, just the nature of life, just the nature of life. But in chapter 40, he turns away from earthly kings. And he says, God's going to send someone else. He's going to send one who has the glory of the Lord. He's not going to be a man with feet of clay like Hezekiah or Ahaz or any other name we can name. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way, and you see it there in verse 3, Prepare the way of the Lord. That's the covenant name from God, often translated Yahweh. Let me tell you what you need, friend. What you need is not an earthly savior. You don't need a better man in your life. You don't need a better woman in your life. You don't need a better person around you. You don't need a new group of friends. That's not what you need. What you need is God. And you know why Israel got in the trouble they got into? because they forgot their God. And you know why the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in trouble today? Because we have forgotten our God. We think it's all about the mechanics of church. If we just had better this and better that, more of this and more of that, if we just had more money, if we just had more this, more that, more dazzle, if we just had more glitter. I'm reminded that the the New Testament church began in an upper room and the Holy Spirit fell upon these men and they went out and they began to preach and they began to be persecuted. And you read the Apostle Paul's testimony. In fact, I'll read it for you. Second Corinthians chapter 6. I didn't plan to do this, but this is too good. Second Corinthians chapter 6. The end of verse 2 begins, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. Killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Anybody here want to sign up for that? I think not. You know, you know the Christianity we're selling today? You know the Christianity that many people bought today? If you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. Well, I'd say, yeah, all the problems except these Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. Not many folks signing up for that. Not many churches marketing that. Not many Christians hanging on to that. There's a lot of Christians, rather, in this soft, comfortable Christianity that we've embraced who suggest that somehow if you come to Jesus, you don't have to put up with sleepless nights. You don't have to put up with beatings. You don't have to put up with imprisonments. You don't have to put up with being thought a fool by the culture. (laughs) Well, as I've said many times, if that's your form of Christianity, then you owe a bit of an apology to the Lord Jesus who took all of that and more in your place. Not so that you could live a comfortable life, but so that you could live a committed life and know that the finish line makes all the beatings and the imprisonments and the sleepless nights and the hunger and everything else that Paul described worth it. The finish line. The finish line makes it worth it. I'm not much of a track star. In fact, I'm not a star at all and certainly not in track. I ran track in the seventh and eighth grade. I learned that the universal experience in track is fatigue. I bailed on that one. I'm living the rest of my life trying not to be as tired as I was in the eighth grade. So, I'm a respecter of those Who do run track. In fact, I watched a track video, track meet video. Somebody was running the 100 or 200 or something recently. And now my inbox is full of track videos, (laughs) which I have tried not to watch because I'm trying to be productive. But I'm, I'm a sucker for a track meet. I actually like track. I like to watch it. I don't like to run it. Because I have great respect for people who have prepared and worked hard and then have great skill. And I like it when guys can run like the wind. I like that. I never have been that guy. But I'm reminded that the reason they exercise and the reason they do all of that is because there is a finish line. And they know they have to pace themselves. They have to determine what kind of schedule is necessary. They have to recognize that it's going to hurt. That it's going to be dis- great discomfort in their lives they know all this and they keep doing it because in the end they are competing they are competing they're competing it seems to me that is a fitting analogy for the Christian life and I suspect there are many Christians today who have stopped competing they just said like Greg Belser did in his eighth grade track suit I'm done I'm done not going to do that anymore don't want to do that anymore Don't see any reason to do that anymore. Well, if you want to quit track, that's fine. I did it. I don't have any apologies for it. But quitting Jesus now, friend, that's a different story. Don't do that. Isaiah 40 is intended to bring comfort, to know that there is a finish line, that God has proclaimed the finish line, and that God intends to bring the finish with a flourish. He's going to do it in a way that's unparalleled. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It's not just going to be, you know, a bunch of applause from the stands and maybe somebody give you a medal. It's not going to be that. The glory of the Lord is going to greet you at the finish line. The glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. So his means will be the glory of the Lord. I want you to notice one other thing he says. Verse 9, his method is to declare the majesty of God. You know, just, just notice these things. Verse 11, his heart is compassionate. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. Verse 12, his strength, his strength is incalculable. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? A span is a distance between your thumb and your little finger when it's extended. God holds the heavens. It's estimated there are, in in in, uh, in, in our univ- in our universe, there are millions and millions, even billions of galaxies, of which we're familiar with only one, the Milky Way, but billions of galaxies, and God measures all of that with the span of His hand. When the glory of the Lord shows up, friend, you don't want to be on the outside looking in. You want to be on the inside. You want to be the one who knows that, who's looking for that, and the one who who recognizes the strength of the Lord is unparalleled. Notice in verse 13, his wisdom is unparalleled. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? In other words, who has been an advisor to God? God asked this question of Job. Who is this that darkens counsel? You'll remember Job's answer in chapter 38 is, I shut my mouth. I'm not offering any more help to God because God knows what he's doing. God is wise beyond our understanding. Let me show you an illustration of this that may be puzzling to you, but I think this is very true. You'll you'll note here verse uh, 2. Go back there to verse 2. I want to show you something. This troubles people who don't dig deep just kind of read superficially. Her warfare is ended re- regarding Jerusalem. Cry to her, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double for all her sins. Now that's a, that's a puzzling verse. We don't quite understand what to do with it because it feels like we, we did something and instead of being disciplined by the Lord, we were double disciplined. Because that's what the word double would typically mean. We used it. If I used it, we would think in terms of adding more than we would expect, adding more than maybe in this case we thought we deserved or had earned. That's what that feels like. And yet, that's not what that phrase means. It's a bit of an idiom in the Hebrew language. I appreciated one commentator who said this, the word double here, the Hebrew word translated double, means to fold over or to fold in half. So think of a sheet of paper, think of a napkin, think of a card that's folded in half. So the the noun form of this word is used only one other time in the Old Testament, and that in the book of Job, chapter 11, verse 6, where, to quote this commentator, divine wisdom is two-sided. Divine wisdom is two-sided. If you look at this side, you see this, and if you look at that side, you see that. It's two-sided. It's double. And it's two-sided in the sense that it always includes hidden ra- realities beyond the human mind. Let me illustrate it this way. If you look at it this way, you, you see what you see. But you don't see what's on the underside. You don't see what else you can't see. You don't see the double side. You don't understand that there are hidden realities that God is doing in your life. So again, look at verse 2. She has received from the Lord double for all her sins. What does that mean? That means that she has received, that, that the end has come for both sides of your circumstance. In other words, we have accomplished, God has accomplished, and is accomplishing in your life, friend. He's accomplishing what you can see, and he's also accomplishing what you can't see. In other words, think about it this way. There's seven plus billion people in the world. Now, if God does something for me in my life, or brings some circumstance into my life, or brings some calamity into my life, or brings some great joy into my life, then it impacts people in my immediate orbit. But don't you see how every one of those people now have their own orbit? So it affects my wife, and if it affects Greg and Susan, then now it affects people beyond us. And beyond us and beyond us and there's this domino effect or ripple effect that occurs and we don't we can't even calculate the the impact of our lives on the people that we can see and know that we know and yet God is at work not only in our lives but he's in life at work in the lives of the people that we know and that we touch who then touch other people whom we don't know and other people that we don't know and on and on it goes you see double Triple, Quadruple, if you will. You've got the side you can't see and the side you can. Now, where does that leave us? I'll tell you, if all you do is evaluate the wisdom of your circumstance on the basis of what you can see, then you're often not very comforted. But Isaiah 40 begins there. Comfort, comfort my people. Because the work that I'm doing in their lives, both sides of it been completed. And the glory of the Lord is about to come. And the glory of the Lord is going to accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. You need to comfort my people. and Let them know that God is... Up to something that's just unexplainable. Unexplainable. We could say so much more. There's so many wonderful truths here in this chapter. I'll jump ahead to verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. <laughs> What's the point? The point is that God God is doing things that are beyond our ability to understand and that God intends to keep doing them and that there's no end to them. That God, he doesn't get tired, he doesn't get bored, he doesn't get distracted, he doesn't run up against a calamity or a problem or a challenge that's bigger than him. The Lord does not faint or grow weary. Think of it this way. You know, God's never had a problem with your problem. God's never been challenged by your challenge. God's never found your difficulty to be difficult. Your hardship to be hard. He's never found you to be impossible. Never. If God can bring a nation back to himself, God can manage you. And God is managing you. He's doing the part you can see, and he's doing the part you can't see. Because God is at work. And God loves you. And he's strong. And he's wise. And he intends for you to be helped and comforted. The mystery of the work of God in our lives is undeniable. Book after book has been written. Sermon after sermon has been preached. Conversation after conversation has been had over the centuries in an attempt to explain or speak for God. But in the end, we're still left with the fact that some things are certain and many things, dare I say, most things are uncertain. In Romans 1, we are certain that creation groans for the day of redemption. In Genesis 3, we are certain that mankind is under a curse that includes death. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are certain that Jesus has removed the sting of death. And in James chapter 1, we are certain that the Bible says we are to count it all joy when we experience trials. Because these trials produce steadfastness for us. In Revelation 20, we are certain that Satan will be defeated and death will be eliminated forever. And in Revelation 21, we are certain that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of those who look to God. But the micro decisions of why this test for this person at this particular time, no one knows. Why do you have your problem today? Why didn't you have it five years ago? Or why will you not have it five years from now? Why do you face these challenges today? Why this test? How long, O Lord, must I wait? The refrain of Scripture again and again is that God works perfectly and wisely and redemptively. Somehow, God is taking your life and my life, even as he did ancient Israel, and he is working all things after the counsel of his will. God is in charge, and he knows what he's doing. He is a loving, heavenly father, and he's at work in your life and in mine today to comfort us and to care for us. There are promises in play And God intends to keep every one of them. I've said many times, I'll close with this. Years ago, there was a men's movement in America called Promise Keepers. Many of you know that that movement. There were a lot of things that were inherently right and good uh, about that movement. And I'm grateful for those emphases in my own life. But there is, in the process of suggesting that that we need to be better, that we need to be stronger, that we need to be more faithful. In a sense, that men need to be promise keepers. There's the veiled suggestion that men will be promise keepers. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, some promises matter more than others. Years ago, I told Susan I would love her until I died. And we're busy keeping that promise. That's a big one. That's that's an important one. Also told her I would never take her to eat something she didn't want to eat. I did lie about that one. (laughs) I'm being a little silly, a little facetious in order to make you aware that there are things in our lives that sometimes come up and the very thing we intend to do, we fail to do. The very thing we ought to do we fail to do the very good that we intend for our lives for our families for our reputation so forth we don't keep we don't do and there's now a smudge if you will a stain by our name because the very promise that we promised we don't keep well that is true of men but that is not true of the god of men because our god has no smudge Our God has made promises. He made a promise to Adam. He made a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Isaac and to Jacob. He made a promise to David. He made a promise to you. He made a promise that God would send his glory and that as his son, we know to be his glory, as his son comes on the earth, it will be glorious. But even Jesus, because he comes to a broken world, faces the scars of a broken world himself in our place. And Jesus takes our place on that cross, not for his crimes or his sins, but for ours. I remind you, friend, that God intends to do something sparkling, miraculous, even confusing. And yet he does something perfectly and wisely. And the reason he does it is because he promised he would do it. So I'll leave you with this one thought. If you're in the first wave of the people of Judah, you're in a chariot, or maybe you're walking because you're going to be a slave the rest of your life. And you're on a dirty road on your way to Babylon. You're a slave. Maybe you're in chains, who knows? And you're walking to Babylon are you thinking, where is God? Well, maybe so. If you're in the midst of your circumstance, are you thinking, where is God? Maybe so. Maybe so. But here's what the scripture would say. Comfort, comfort my people. Make straight his way, the highway of God, and raise up The low places and tear down the high places and make straight the highway of God because God is about to declare his glory he may not even as he did in ancient Babylon declare his glory before you depart this life but he is going to keep his promise he will so as God gives us breath and as God gives us life let us continue to pursue him together And let us recognize that we live in a broken world full of sorrow and full of sadness and full of difficulty and full of hardship and, yes, full of joy and comfort. Let us together pool all of our lives together so that we might present to God a unified heart. We trust in you. We look to you. We hope in you. We do as your word says in verse 9, behold your God. We know our God. And we are not oblivious to his ways. He is wise and strong and loving and good. And he's good today. I hope you know him. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray for our own hearts as we reflect on Jesus today. We're thankful that the glory of the Lord did come. Uh, The ancient Israelites... I uh, had an inkling of what was to come, but they didn't understand what we understand. They didn't see what we got to see. They don't get to read what we read. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your kindness to us and the great privilege you've given to us. Help us to be those who cling to you, to hold on, that remain steadfast. When trials come and hardships come and difficulties come, remind us, Lord, we're just a part of the road maintenance crew. We're preparing the way for the glory of the Lord to come again. One day he will and put an end to all these shenanigans. Thank you, Father, for your tender mercies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.